Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we discuss hard-won self-defense lessons, as well as the information you need to survive a violent encounter. Listen as armed professionals, industry experts, national champions, and gunfight survivors answer all your firearms and self-defense questions while exploring your rights and responsibilities as an armed citizen. Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. And now, here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other stuff at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Coasting with me, the danger pixie, Melody Lauer. Shalom. Good one. Good one. I stand with them. Wait, what? Hey, guess what? What's that? This segment brought to you by Lucky Gunner and Federal Premium Ammunition. Whether there was a firefight or you do, in fact, want to worry about that little guy, you need more ammo, and when it's time to restock, you can't beat Federal Premium Ammunition at LuckyGunner.com. With a shipping department that's always moving at 88 miles per hour, if I order a case of American Eagle from Lucky Gunner on a Thursday, that my doorstep ready to shoot before the weekend starts. Head to LuckyGunner.com today to check out their in-stock lineup of federal premium ammunition. And remember, unless you're on fire or drowning, you can never really have too much ammo. So I am incredibly pleased uh, to welcome back to the show uh, Ed Morales, um, survivor of the uh, 1986... Miami FBI gunfight and author of the new book, FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau. Uh, and honestly, you could have titled that Five Minutes to Change the World and also been equally, equally accurate. But welcome back to the show, Ed. It's good to be back, John. So, um, so last time we kind of did the broad strokes of the incident. And as we're getting down to the the last segment, I realize that we've suddenly gotten to the part that people are most interested in, probably, and we don't really have time to talk about it. And you were kind enough to um, change around some of your schedule, and we're recording a bunch of shows all on the same day. And so we're kind of like time traveling now, just so the listeners know, but uh, kind enough to change around your schedule and come back to talk to us. I really very much appreciate that, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. But let's let's I'll just I'll give some people some background info real quick so we know where we're at and we'll go from there. Uh, essentially, you're part of the FBI Violent uh, Crimes Task Force in Miami, um, and there's been a series of very violent bank robberies, and you've gotten a lead that the individuals responsible have stolen a black Monte Carlo, and one of the other agents. Um, it was was it Jerry that had the hunch or Ben? I'm sorry. It was a supervisor, Ben uh, Gordon McNeil. Gordon McNeil. I'm, I apologize. So Gordon McNeil no, is at firearms training on April 10th uh, with Jerry Dove. Has a hunch um, uh, and, and says, "Hey, we should set up a surveillance. I think these guys are going to hit again." And fast forward, you guys set up this very uh, very quickly organized. A surveillance where you are going to essentially be where you think the robbers are going to be. You're about five minutes into the into the surveillance, and the call comes out that hey, uh, we're following a black Monte Carlo that has the exact same tags 
uh, as um, the ones reported on this stolen car that these two guys shot the dude and took his car and left him for dead. So let's, that, that's about where we're at. So let's pick up right there. Um, so the call comes out, and you guys had literally been on actual surveillance for about five minutes. What, what was your first thought? Wow. Um, amazement. Um, I, I truly could not believe that, that uh, the, the perpetrators were either stupid enough or, or lazy enough to, to be driving that stolen car with the same tag on it. I mean, because that tag had been publicized or published out to every law enforcement uh, officer in, in the uh, southern Florida area. And here they were in in broad daylight <laughs> riding around in that stolen car. Do you think that um, it seems like in both the before before the event and even during the precursor to the event and during the event? It they almost just, seems like arrogance. Yeah. yeah like, so. like an arrogant act. See, we, we, we took it as that. It, it, it's uh, the arrogance in your face type attitude. Um, I mean, these two guys were former military, uh, well-trained, 101st Airborne, you know, uh, small unit tactics. Um, after the, uh, the case, uh, after the shooting incident, uh, there was some follow-up investigation, <clears throat> and uh, we found, uh, or we, the squad found a, uh, a receipt for uh, the purchase of 5,000 rounds of uh, M16 ammo, you know, it's a 5.56 caliber or 2.23 caliber uh, ammunition, and uh, that that had been purchased a week before the shooting. And when we did, uh, when the the, the uh, law enforcement uh, folks did search warrants on their homes, not one single round of ammo was found. You know, because uh, you know the girlfriends and spouses were interviewed, and they said, "Hey, these guys went out shooting every day." They practiced a lot, mm. okay? So 5,000 rounds of ammo was gone. If um, – did anybody kind of have an idea as far as – let me ask you this. Uh, let me back up. So these guys have practiced a lot. They've clearly um, – at least Platt had uh, decided well in advance that um, he wasn't going to be taken, and he meant that. Uh, had come to come to grips with it, and had it seems like he had done, and and, and I'm not saying that I, I have zero respect for um, the man's actions, but as far as his, <clears throat> I dedication to his job as as misguided as his job was, um, he took his job pretty seriously, I guess. Oh, I, I have to agree with that uh, statement, John. You know, I mean, he he was. I mean, he's a believer. I mean, he's a convert. He is, he is, uh, in in full compliance with with his uh, his uh, lifestyle, and, and so it was Maddox. You know, they they, they were both, uh, according to their uh, girlfriends and, and ex wives or wives, uh, they were health fanatics. Uh, they didn't necessarily go out jogging, you know, or lifting weights. But they were very conscious of what they ate. They were conscious of, you know, their 
their strength, you know, their, uh, they, they didn't take drugs, they didn't drink excessively, and uh, they did practice uh, with their firearms a great deal. I mean, weekly, or, de- or not quite daily, but weekly. And, uh, again, that mindset coming from the military, um, you know, you, you play how you practice. You know, so if, if you want to play properly, you have to pr- practice and train properly. Let me ask you this. Um, so there's a, there's a researcher by the name of John Hearn who's actually studied this event quite a bit, uh, but he's also just studied other violent encounters. And one of the things that he talks about is recency of practice and how important that is for um, performance, I guess. So these guys practice on an almost daily basis, uh, at least on a, a weekly basis or multi-times a week. Um, now McNeil and, and, and I apologize, was Dove who was at the firearms training on the 10th? No, it, it was, uh, Ben Grogan. I, I uh, apologize. The, I misspoke no, earlier. That, that, that's okay. It's Ben Grogan and, and, uh, Gordon McNeil were at firearms. Okay. Um, other than those two who had practiced literally the day before, do you know when the last time the rest of you guys had gotten a shoot was? You know, I, I really couldn't tell you individually, but I know, uh, per policy, uh, we are required to, to qualify to shoot and qualify uh, four times a year, mm-hmm. and uh, during that during that uh, those uh, four training courses, we fire uh, probably around three to three hundred and fifty rounds, and then uh, sprinkled into that are, are anywhere from ten to twenty five twenty to twenty five shotgun rounds. Mm-hmm. So, let's say the average agent in one year would fire um, one thousand two hundred rounds of uh, handgun ammunition, and maybe you know, 80 rounds of shotgun ammo. Right. So a little, little bit different as far as <laughs> preparation before the event goes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I'll say it here, you know, uh, firearms, like uh, many other, uh, you know, eye-hand coordinating, coordination uh, uh, type activity, is a perishable skill. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't be a good shooter if you don't practice. Right. Um, so we got about a minute left in this segment, and that is a really awkward time to get too deeply into this. Um, so you were, you, you were amazed so that they hadn't changed the tags. And, um, so was there any, as you're like speeding towards the, uh, the, um, it was Grogan that had spotted them, right? Or was it? Correct. Uh, as you're speeding towards their car and you've got a bunch of stuff going through your head, were at that point, did you have any apprehension about what was going on or was it just another day at the job? Just real quick answer and then we'll get more. Well, up until that point, it was just another day at the job. You know, when, when the call came out, it was like, you know, obvious, obvious apprehension, you know, set in, you know, I mean, not, not frightful apprehension, but, you know, caution apprehension. Right. Okay. Uh, we're talking with Ed Morales about the FBI Miami firefight, 1986. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scattergun since 1977, a legacy of quality, innovation, and service. 
Learn more about their firearms and accessories as well as the new EDC-X9, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match grade accuracy, superior ergonomics, and concealability with modern service pistol capacity and reliability at www.wilsoncombat.com. Um, so we're talking with Ed Morales about the FBI Miami firefight. And so let's just pick up. Um, there's the, the car has been spotted. And at a certain point, the call gets made to uh, stop the, the Platin Maddox in the most advantageous place possible to um, avoid civilian casualties and getting into a running gun battle on the highway. So what's how does the car stop go? Uh, what what goes on? I guess. Well, you know, uh, initially I, I, w- I was tremendously concerned uh, that we would have to stop the car in, in a in a high public you know area, um, and I, I mean that was my that was one of my worst fears, if not the worst fear, uh, because of the these two uh, individuals' propensity to to shoot people. You know, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it beyond them to. Uh, to, to use, uh, and th- this is before the the word you know became popular. But uh, I wouldn't put it beyond them to use uh, civilians as human shields, you know, yeah. to, uh, to 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 try to uh, effect their escape, you know. But a- as luck would have it, um, I-, I honestly don't know what made them turn down southbound on 82nd Avenue because I mean that was like holy cow! I mean this is this is fantastic. You know, we had uh, as we're going south uh, on the left side of the road, we had resi- you know residential uh, you know area, uh, and uh, on the on the uh, right side was a shopping center, the back of a shopping center with uh, high uh, cinder block and concrete walls, and that was perfect. You know, so the idea was to try to force them, car stop them, force them into the right side of the highway, uh, the, the street. I mean, and. Uh, have the uh, the wall as a backdrop, you know, for any any shots fired, you know. So, unfortunately, uh, as I mentioned, I believe last time, you know, you have two types of car stops: compliant and non-compliant. And uh, as soon as uh, Ben and Jerry activated their siren and uh, put the uh, the little uh, uh, police light up on the dashboard, they reacted by uh, stepping on the gas of their stolen car and trying to escape. Right. And that led to a series of uh, crashes—excuse <coughs> me—crashes and, and bumper car tactics right. um, that uh, eventually led uh, to them being pinned uh, in front of a, of, of a residence on 82nd Avenue. So the the crash itself was pretty violent. Um, you smacked the windshield at about 20, 30 miles per hour. Uh, and had you not already been pre-adrenalized, it might have might have gone a lot worse for you. But uh, several agents lost their firearms in the crash. That's correct. Uh, two agents, uh, specifically uh, Richard Manowski, he uh, he was behind us, and then eventually he ended up being the lead vehicle, uh, and he's the one that rammed, uh, eventually rammed the stolen car to a stop. So uh, he had. You know, because he, he he figured, and rightfully so, figured he would need quick access to his uh, sidearm. And he decided to put it on uh, either on his lap or under his thigh. I'm not quite sure. And uh, he ended up ramming the stolen Monte Carlo on three separate occasions, which, unbeknownst to him, you know, would, would cause 
the weapon that was underneath his thigh to, to pop out, to slide out. And um, he lost visual sight of the weapon, so he really didn't know where the heck it had gone. Okay, He thought that it had, um, because at one time when he rammed the car, when he used his car to ram the stolen Monte Carlo, the passenger side door of his car popped open, and he thought uh, that the weapon had flown out of the uh, of the car. So uh, that was one incident. And the other incident was my partner. I, I was sitting right next to him, and I didn't even see him, you know, take the gun out of his holster, and he placed it underneath his uh, his lap. I mean, I, I mean, he's right next to me, and I didn't even see that. So when we crashed up against the wall uh, and came to a sudden stop, the gun uh, flew out from underneath his thigh, and uh, according to him, he it bounced um, up from underneath the uh, the dashboard, bounced back under his seat, and when he made a sweep of the underneath the, uh, of his seat with his hand, he said he couldn't find it, so he just said, "Forget it," and went to his backup weapon. Well, and a lot of people have questioned that, and what they don't seem to understand is at the time. That was that was like a commonly taught in in many places tactic if you right. thought you were going to need quick access to your gun on a car. I mean and we've 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 come from there and stuff like that, but 1986 that was that was the thought. So yeah. yeah. You um you exit the vehicle and start moving towards the the pile of cars. Um right. talk about that. Well, uh, as uh, I mentioned in the book, it was almost instinctive. Uh, I, I didn't know where the uh, the uh, perpetrators were, but I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to explain, you know, what uh, <clears throat> the human animal is capable of. You know, if if we go back a hundred thousand years to when we really truly were animals, you know, I mean, uh, we probably had a, a better sense of smell and hearing and eyesight, you know. So, and this was. Uh, it's just something that just popped into my mind. I, I knew that I knew where they were, uh, and and I started moving in that direction without even without any visual uh, verification. So as I started moving in that direction, I was scanning left and right as I'm crossing the street, and I saw Ben and, and Jerry on the right side of the uh, perimeter, and John Hanlon and I were heading in that direction, and then I scanned to the left and I saw Gordon McNeil on the left side of the perimeter by himself. So I instantly came to a, a decision thinking, okay, uh, four agents on the right, one agent on the left. That makes the left side the weakest point. So halfway across the street, I uh, I veered to the left to go over to reinforce uh, Gordon McNeil's position. So what? how'd that go? Uh, so you're running across the street and... You're getting you're getting some time dilation uh, as that's happening, or tachypsychia, where uh, you feel like you're moving in slow motion, and that's that's Correct. a perception thing. But Correct, yeah. what what was going through your head as you're moving to reinforce the left side of the engagement? Well, uh, I, I I probably can't say that what was going through my head <laughs> on the radio, but it starts with the word with the letter S O S O S O S. Yeah, yeah. Because. <laughs> uh, because uh, I mean, you could you could hear the bullets, you know, the gunfire, and then uh, you know you could hear, you know, some zinging sounds, you know, like, 
you know, go by you, you know, it's like, oh, yes, you know. <laughs> you know they're close when they make that sound. Yes, definitely, you know, and uh, my my thought, uh, again, I, I did not have any visual verification of where the subjects were, but I I knew that wherever Gordon McNeil was shooting at, okay, and, and that was my that was my target location was to get to the left side of Gordon McNeil and then uh, using him as a uh, basically a pointer to find out where the subjects were. So that was my intent, to, to move into the left side of Gordon McNeil behind the engine block uh, of the, the car that he was hiding behind, which was Manowski's uh, blue uh, Chevy, and uh, reinforce him. And then I, I, could, I could figure out where they were because, uh, as I believe I mentioned last time, um, the, uh, the uh, stolen Monte Carlo had the windows up, and uh, the windows, being South Florida, uh, practically 100% of all cars down there have tinted windows. Right. So, um, you know, I, I couldn't see inside the vehicle because they, they were in the shade. You know, they had tinted windows and I was in sunlight, you know. So uh, I could vaguely see shadows on the inside, but, you know, I couldn't really identify who they were. Um. So as you're running across, and we're we're going to be coming up on uh the the time for this segment well let's just do this we'll go to break now and then we'll hop right in uh coming up so we're talking with ed morellis the author of fbi miami firefight five minutes to change the bureau you're listening to ballistic radio Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. This segment also brought to you by Surefire. Know your target. What is beyond it, but how can you really know your target? By shining a really bright light on it, and that's where Surefire comes in. From the new 1200-lumen EDCL-2T handheld or 500-lumen EDCL-1T handheld to the 1000-lumen XH35 or the 1500-lumen M600DF Scout Light, Surefire can make sure you never have to yell Aziz Light ever again. Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Remember, just for listening to Ballistic Radio, you can get 20% off everything at the Surefire.com web store except batteries and suppressors by entering the discount code Aziz Light. No space, A-Z-I-Z-L-I-G-H-T. So we're talking with Ed Morales. Um, you're running across the street, uh, reinforce the left side of this engagement, and at some point, as you're coming up on all of this, you take a uh, two-two-three rifle round in your left forearm, and it practically amputates your your arm. That's correct. You know, I, I, I used to joke with my friends, and I, I still do. You know, whenever we talk about the incident, you know, I tell them, I said, "Hey, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the gunfight." <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I didn't get there, you know. I, I, I mean, literally, it was like magic. I mean, I, I, it's, it's. That's the only way I can describe it, you know, so people can understand. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm looking at Gordon McNeil and, and looking at the, uh, the blue uh, Chevy, Manowski's car, and again, it feels like I'm running in slow motion, you know. And, and I'm, I'm looking and I'm, 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 I'm seeing that I, I'm getting closer and closer, and then almost like instantaneously, boom. I'm looking up at the blue sky, and I'm thinking, what the hell happened here? I said, it, it was just so bizarre. I mean, it was like, like a time teleportation or, you know, Scotty beamed me up, you know, because one second I'm looking 
you know, at, at McNeil, and the next second I'm looking up at the sky, and I'm thinking, what happened? And never having been shot before, my mind was trying to fill in the gap, okay? And I'm thinking, oh, my God. I said, I can't believe I ran into the back of Gordon's car. You know, as I was coming around to reinforce Gordon, I, I had to go around the back of his car. Um, so I, 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 I thought to myself, you're an idiot, you should have given yourself more a wider berth, you know, a, a wider area to go around as opposed to cutting it so close. And I cut it so close that I, I must have hit the uh, the left corner uh, fender area and when I with my thigh and I knocked myself back. That that was my initial thought. And I'm thinking, you're a stupid person. I said, I, I kept admonishing myself, you know, so... And I said, "Get up, get up, get up!" You know, and I'm, I'm, I've got the shotgun in my right arm, and and I'm, I'm using my, I'm trying to use my left arm to, to push myself up, because uh, simultaneously I, I felt um, a, a weird uh, sense of fatigue or, or or tiredness hit me at the same time, and I'm thinking, "Boy, I feel tired." <laughs> you know, go so, figure. I'm, try, I'm trying to to use my my left arm to push up. You know, and. And my shoulder's moving, and my elbow's moving, but, I mean, nothing is happening. You know, and I'm thinking, what in the world? And, of course, shots are, are still flying overhead, and Gordon is still behind the engine block of the car shooting. And I'm thinking, get up. You know, Gordon's in, in trouble. And um, it, it just didn't work, you know. And, and it, it seemed like it took longer than it really did, but it was only, like, three to four seconds. And then Gordon McNeil ran out of ammo and retreated from the uh, blue blue uh, Chevy to the back of his car to reload. It wasn't until that point that I actually um, forced myself to make a visual inspection of, of why my, my uh, left arm wasn't working. And when I looked at my left arm, that's the first time I realized that I'd been shot. Let me ask you this, um, and, and I'm... Uh, correct me because I'm making some suppositions here, so please correct me. But do you think – well, I guess the first question is, had you ever considered um, that you might be struck, uh, like actually considered and come to grips with and and sort of been like, well, if this happens, I'll do this? Uh, or was the first time you had really given it any thought when you were looking down at your left arm going, huh, that's a weird thing? Well, you know, I, I think most, most law enforcement officers will, will, uh, will go through scenarios, you know, what ifs, you know, you know I, I think the most common one is like, hey, what, what, ha- what, what will I do or how should I react if my partner gets taken hostage? Or what will I do or react if I get taken hostage? You know, so you, these are things that you need to talk, talk about with your partner, especially, you know, in a hostage situation or what happens if my partner gets shot, Okay. I mean, do I react to the to to him first, or do I do I react to the threat? You know, I mean, these are all things that uh, probably should be answered. You know, I mean, at least have some some idea. You, you can't go into a situation like that with a blank slate. Yeah. Okay. You have to have some plan or some training or some idea of. of what you'll do. I mean, like I said, if you go in with a blank slate, then, you know, you have nothing to work with, you know. Right. So, um, 
you know, I mean, I, I had considered, you know, what, you know, never having experienced getting shot, and honestly, I don't want to experience it again, you know. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I think everybody plays uh, these these uh, mind games, I guess you'd call them, you know, as what ifs, you know, what if, what if, but um, to the point where it became like a the twilight zone i guess you, you could call it everything became every, everything was slow and everything was was kind of depressed you know i, I mean it it wasn't clear it, it wasn't crystal clear it was more like a a slower not quite defined you know perimeter you know it's yeah. hard it's hard to explain shock. Murky? Yeah, murky, yeah, murky is the word, yeah. And then the the reaction was uh was slower. I mean in my mind it was slower, but in reality it was probably probably real quick. But the 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 thing that uh, was really totally uh, uh unbelievable totally unbelievable was um the um the fact that when I realized I'd been shot, you know, it was it was just so foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just bizarro, and um, and it was hard to um, hard to, to wrap wrap my head around that. So, you you've gotten yourself back up. You've got the shotgun on your right arm. Um, things are chaotic. Things are moving. Did you have any idea? I guess the overall situation yet, or not really, or what happened next? So I want to. I, we could spend hours talking about this, but I want to kind of try and work yes, through we could. it. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to trust me. Uh, I kind of like to work through what happened next, though, in a in a way that the well, listeners you know can get a, it. It. Uh, my thoughts were like, oh my god, you know. I, I said I, I, when I finally realized I was shot, you know, it's like, oh crap, you know. But I could still hear gunfire, you know, coming from my right, which is Ben and and Jerry's position and Jake's, and I could still still hear gunfire coming from my left, way in the in the the background, you know, and that was the the Overwatch position that Ron Reiser and and Gilbert Arantia had had, had, uh, you know, about a pure coincidence, pure chance had had uh, provided, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, I'm I'm cool, you know, everything's fine, you know, everything's, you know, the agents are still shooting, the agents are still there, you know, I'm down. That's no problem, you know. I mean, and I was uh, I was pretty pretty confident with that, pretty relaxed. Even though I mean, I I had uh, I had been you know my arm was was like roadkill. Yeah. Um. So, um, you know, I, I was I was you know pretty confident. But the problem is that the longer the the shooting lasted, the less confident I became. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, most police shootings are seconds. You know, you've got uh, three to five shots, uh, you know, three to seven shots fired in, in less than 10 seconds, you know, and it's over. It's done. Let you me, know, but let me ask you ahead. a question if I can. Um, and uh, I don't I don't think people understand uh, how up in the air this situation was until the very end. But how close did Platt come to winning? Very close. Very close, yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know the uh, as we know from twenty twenty hindsight, the uh, the assault rifle. I mean, he he swept the field. I mean, it's like you know, it's like shooting. You know, uh, I don't I don't know how to phrase it. You know, but I mean, 
his his uh, his tool was um, obviously much bigger than ours. So the, some... only, the only advantage we ended up having was numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the end, okay, even though he had the the, the biggest gun, okay, we we had uh, more numbers. You know, and uh, I, I'm reminded, you know, <laughs> of World War II. You know, it's the, the Sherman tank against against the German Panzer. You know, the German Panzer was a devastating uh, machine, but uh, Amer- the Americans had like, you know, dozens of of, pan- of uh, Shermans to, to, to focus on one Panzer. So numbers numbers did uh, won the day, you know, against the Panzer. You know, and the same thing with us. Numbers won won the day uh, over Platt and, and his uh, assault rifle. Well, and that's kind of we got about a minute left in this segment, but it, and I think it's one of the, um, it's one of the things that's good that came out of that, and also the the North Hollywood shootout, which seemed to finally drive the lesson home, is that if someone knows what they're doing, and mm-hmm. has the proper equipment, uh, it can really very much change the dynamics of a situation. Oh, so, absolutely. Uh, what I want to ask you about, what uh, we got about thirty seconds, and then we'll get into it. But what event made you realize that you needed to handle this, and you were the one that was going to do it? Like inside of all of this, was there any specific moment where it's like, okay, this isn't going on anymore? Yes, there, there was a point where uh, I, I, I I was the only one who was in a position to to see what was going on. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. So right now we're talking with Ed Morellis. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Surefire, the professional's choice for suppressors and illumination tools. Surefire, America's beacon of freedom. Uh, we're talking with Ed Morellis, and before the break you kind of alluded to this, but... Uh, what went on? I guess what happened that uh, that that sort of not not that you hadn't been taking action, but uh, put you from a defensive mindset or defensive position to on the offensive was. Well, you know, as uh, as the, the I mentioned before, uh, I went from you know being secure in the fact that there were still agents shooting around me, you know, to a point where you know the shooting became less and less, you know, and I'm thinking, what the heck? So I, I heard shooting over to the right side of the scene. So I started calling on my back uh, from from where I, the position that I had fallen, and uh, crawled around the back of Gordon McNeil's car to to see what was going on on, on that side of the of, of the scene because I I didn't want to stand up. First of all, I didn't know whether I could stand up, and secondly, I didn't want to stand up. You know, so I wanted to see what was going on. And it was at that point that I saw I saw Gordon McNeil on the street. He was out, you know, out of the fight. And then I I crawled around the back of his car and I got past the rear tires. And it was devastating at that point. You know, I saw uh, Jerry Dove, Ben Grogan, and John Hanlon. You know, behind uh, Ben's car, and uh, I saw a pair of feet, a pair of legs running from the rear of the car to the front. And then by the time I positioned myself at the back of uh, uh, Gordon's bumper and looked at the uh, at the scene again with a little bit more focus, you know, and, and, and I had the shotgun in my, in my right hand. And when I saw the two subjects in Ben's car, 
it became immediately obvious to me what they were trying to do, and what they were trying to do was was escape in, in Ben's car. And at that point, I decided hey, there is no way in hell that they are going to move that car, because if they backed the car up, they would have to run over at least two agents and possibly three agents to escape. And I said to myself, they are not going to move that car. And that was the, the motivating uh, issue, the motivating factor there, that, that they were not going to. I mean, I didn't know whether the agents were alive or dead at that point in time, you know, but if they got run over by a, a, a car, okay, I knew that they were more more than likely get get killed. So that was the motivating factor. So we got about uh, seven and a half minutes left. Um, what happened next? Well, I I still had the shotgun in my in my right hand, and uh, I figured, hey, you know what? The shotgun's a heavy weapon, and I, I went through a series of plans. I said, well, I could stand up and kind of try to move in closer uh, to the to the uh, the driver uh, in the in the, in Ben's car. Try to move in as close as possible before they notice me, and then use the shotgun one time on the on the driver. Drop the shotgun, and then go to the sidearm to, to address the uh, the passenger. And I, I thought about that, and I'm thinking, well, that's not you know probably that's that's probably not the best plan. So I figured, well, I said I have to use the shotgun because it's the heaviest weapon that I have. I said, and um, you know, I, and being being the heavier weapon, I, I figured, you know, that it'll it'll uh, it'll probably produce a better result. So I, I I kept trying to figure out. I said, well, I could bring it up to my shoulder and fire it one-handed, you know, like like that uh, recruiting agent did uh, to me in in uh, Alexandria years before. And uh, I went ahead and started doing that. But then as I brought the shotgun up, it, I just happened to you know be in the right place at the right time. The uh, the bumper, the rear bumper on uh, Gordon's car, had a little lip on it. Had like a two-inch lip, uh, a, a little uh, rubberized uh, cover on the bumper. And uh, I said, "Well, this is perfect. You know, I can lay this, the the front of the, uh, the shotgun on on the bumper, and I can I can work the sights and, and the trigger guard from the back." And then I. Again, it, to me, it, it seemed like it took like several seconds to, to get situated, but in reality, it was probably like one or two seconds, you know, to to get the weapon up, get behind the weapon, get get on the sights, and 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 find find a good uh, sight alignment on the uh, on the driver. And uh, when I when I thought I had good sight alignment, I, I fired the shotgun. So you end up running the shotgun dry. Uh, you had. You had fired around underneath the car and actually struck Platt in the feet uh, mm -hmm. when he was moving to Ben's car. And you end up figuring out on the fly how to do a uh, strong hand only uh, shotgun um, manipulation and, and some other stuff, too. All stuff that's now taught uh, partly because of this incident. But after, after you ran the shotgun dry and we got about five minutes left, mm -hmm. maybe... What what happened then? They were still a threat. And well, the thing is, you know, I, I I could tell. I mean, I I felt in my heart that the the driver. I I I, I placed one good round into the driver. Okay, and I, I thought in my mind he's absolutely dead. Mm -hmm. You know, but I was worried about the passenger because uh, 
the uh, the angle of attack on him had to be through the windshield, and the angles were just too severe, you know, on the windshield. So I figured, well, you know what, most of those pellets probably bounced off the windshield, so he's probably still alive. So what happened was I said, well, you know, at least the driver's incapacitated, so he can't move the car. So that's when I turned around and, and uh, looked at the guys across the street, uh, Reiser and, and Arantia, and the only words I ever remember saying during the shooting incident was, it's okay, come on over. Okay, yeah. And they responded by yelling back at me, stay down, stay down. So at that point in time, you know, I, I, I came to the realization, it's like, oh, crap, you know. I said, they don't know the gunfight's over. Huh. You know, I mean, in my mind, you know, it was over. You know, But then I said, well, I mean, I, I can't blame them for not running into the teeth of, of a, an assault rifle because that's what I did and it didn't work out too well you know because so, <laughs> right. I ended up on my butt on the street you know so I said oh god you know so I said hey I have got to do something to show these guys and the responding officers and, and the paramedics and everybody else that responded you know because by that time there were like literally hundreds of people <laughs> yeah. on the on the uh, north and south side of the perimeter waiting Okay, and I'm thinking, I have got to show these people that it's safe. And the only way I can do do that is to, to stand up. And, uh, again, I, st- I started going through the uh, the the thought process of, of death, okay, and I, and I came to the realization that I was going to die, okay, I accepted death. And um, as I mentioned in the book, you know, that empowered me because it's like, hey, what, do, what can you do to a dead man, you know? Not much. <laughs> You know, you can't kill him twice, you know. So, yeah. so I figured, you know, that that empowered me and it, it gave me uh, strength and anger, you know. So um, I um, I stood up and, and I believe me, the last thing in the world I wanted to do, to do was stand up, you know. But I stood up and I figured, well, you know, I'll show these guys it's safe. And since I am going to stand up, I may as well make sure that it, it is safe. So that's when I decided to close in, fire, and, 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 uh, and uh, maneuver into the... Uh, the target, you know. So um, I, I kept firing one shot at a time, and then, and then I'd move forward, set, and fire, and then move forward and set until I was um, at the at the door. At that point, uh, Ron Reisner and uh, Gilbert Arantia had responded to back me up. When I find, when I got it, when I got to the door, the the driver's side door of Ben's car, they responded with their guns out, you know, and that's when Ron said, "Ed." Hey, Put your gun away. It's over. Yeah. Um, so what you what you have done at this point for for those that don't know is advanced on Platt and Maddox. Uh, you end up shooting Platt twice, uh, not not sequentially, but once right. shoot Maddox three times, uh, shoot Platt with your last round, and that's what yeah. finally yep. ends the engagement. Um, right. Right. We we only got about two minutes left, uh, if even. What is the one thing that if you could tell it to anybody that is putting themselves in harm's way to uh, to do the job, you know, whether it's a cop or just an armed citizen that's there to protect their family, the one thing that you would leave them with real quick before we real go? Real quick, I would say uh, trust your equipment. I mean, if you bought it, you practice with it, trust it. Okay, but it's be, survival is beyond equipment. Survival is a, a mindset. Okay, uh, the equipment could take you so far, but your mindset, your your decision to to fight, your decision, your decision to persevere, 
is just as important as good equipment. Well, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, everybody, go buy Ed's book, FBI Miami, Firefight, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau. Um, thank you again, sir, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure uh, and an honor. So, Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you. no worries. Hey, guys, make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. It helps us out a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe. See you next week.